The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. Well, just to give you a bit of a, a recap on where we've been for the last uh, five or so months, um, particularly if, if today's your first time with us, uh, we've been walking through John's Gospel, and, and John, the, the Gospel writer, uh, began John chapter 1 with this explosive start, introducing us to Jesus Christ the Word, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, and the Word who became flesh. He is the God who, who put on flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. Then, in John chapter 1, this Jesus enters the stage, and he starts gathering disciples, gathering these people who will start following him. We then moved into John chapter 2, where Jesus took his disciples to a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And that's where he performed his first miracle, turning lots and lots of water into lots and lots of very good quality wine. Uh, and John writes there that uh, his disciples there for the first time believed him. They believed actually that he was who he said he was. And then following that, still in John chapter 2, Jesus went to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and that's where he drove everybody out of the temple. In John chapter 3, uh, the scene changes, and we end up, we, we become kind of like flies on the wall, uh, watching a conversation between Jesus and, a, and an individual, a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this great teacher of the law, and, and yet here in John 3, Jesus is the one teaching him teaching him that our situation as sinners is so stark, so desperately uh, horrible that we need to be actually born again, like a, a complete, complete reset of our entire lives. From there, Jesus went to a Samaritan village in John chapter 4, where he meets another individual who could not be more different to Nicodemus. There was a woman at a well, she was a Samaritan, and she was somewhat of a social and moral outcast. And as far as we can tell, outside of Jesus' immediate disciples, she becomes one of the very first people ever to believe in Jesus. And then from there, Jesus went back to Galilee again, and he healed the royal official's son. This royal official, as we saw a few weeks ago, he, he wanted Jesus to heal his son, but Jesus wanted to heal this man's heart more than he wanted to heal his son, but then did both. In John chapter 5, he goes back to Jerusalem. We, his disciples are not mentioned. We're not sure if they are there or not. And he goes into this place where there's a lot of disabled people, and he finds this man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and he heals him. He instructs this man to pick up his mat and walk home. And so the man does. And it gets Jesus into a whole lot of trouble because it was on the Sabbath. And Jesus is having this conversation, this discourse with these Jews who are really angry at him for doing these works on the Sabbath and comparing himself to God. And what we looked at last week is that Jesus makes these massive claims about who he is. These massive claims that he's not just comparing himself to God, he is one with God. They are one in unity, one in relationship. He is like God, he is the one who gives life, he gives eternal life. And like God, he is the God who judges. He is the one who will stand in judgment over all of mankind. Today's passage is 
kind of part two of that conversation that Jesus is having with a group of Jews. He's still in that conversation there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray and then we're going to launch ourselves into that text. So let's pray now. Father, your word teaches us that your word is indeed a lamp for our feet, Lord, and is a light to our path. We ask, God, that you would illuminate the path ahead of us. We ask, God, Holy Spirit, that you would make clear to us these words that Jesus has for us today. Lord, we seek life from you according to your word. We come to you seeking that you would once again make us alive and refresh our hearts, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would accept us because of your Son. That were it not for Jesus, you would have every reason to cast us aside. But God, because of your great love, you sent your Son who died in our place. And so we come to offer this offering to you, Lord, of our time and our hearts, and we ask God that you will accept it. Lord Jesus, we, we ask and plead with you to open our hearts to your word this morning, that we would understand your word and you would increase the joy in our hearts as a result. Amen. <clears throat> One of the uh, tussles that we see often our kids engaging in amongst our children is the right to be in charge. There's often that's kind of the cause of the fight. Someone's decided they're going to tell the others what to do. They're, they're going to be in charge. And that's often, the, regardless of whatever the situation is, that's normally kind of the spark that ignites a bit of a bonfire or a bushfire sometimes. Who's in charge when mum and dad aren't there? <clears throat> now, and sometimes it's who's in charge even when mum and dad are there, actually. Um, who's in charge when mum and dad aren't there? And sometimes that's really clear. Like when they ride to school and their scooters, uh, Noah, she's in charge. She's the oldest. She's the most responsible. We tell the boys, you do what she says. We don't care. You do what she says. But it's, there's other times where it's not so clear and, and they don't find it particularly clear. And it's in that fogginess of they don't know who's in charge, that's where the big fights generally happen. There is, however, a trump card that the children will play from time to time. That is the mum and dad said card. That if they play that card, if they can come and they say, well, mum said or dad said, then that ends the discussion. Well, that should end the discussion. Like if they're over at their neighbor's house and uh, we, send, we send someone over, go get your brother, go get your sister, it's time to come home. They come over and they say, mum said, dad said, then... The discussion's over. That's the law. That's what happens. That's the authority that trumps all other authority. Today, Jesus is kind of going to play that trump card himself. He's going to say, I've been sent from the Father. That word sent occurs numerous times in this passage. He's going to play that trump card. He's going to tell the Jews where he gets his authority from. It's from God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Last week in our passage, we looked at the massive claims that Jesus made about himself. He said that he was one with God the Father, that he was the one who gives life and that he is the judge. 
And these things are really crucial to knowing Jesus and understanding Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer, you need to understand that he's more than just a nice guy. He's, he's more than just a doer of good. He is actually God. And something needs to be done in your life about that. You can either receive that, accept it, and bow the knee and call him your Lord and Savior, or you can utterly reject him and say, no, thank you, I think you're a lunatic, I want nothing to do with you. But we can't sit on the fence and do nothing. We can't nothing Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. This is who he is because God the Father sent him to be that person, to do these things. He says this in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you look at it, this is the basis of Jesus' argument the whole way through. Over and over again, he says, I am the one who has been sent by the Father. This is where he gets his authority from. The question now is, will the Jews believe him? Will the Jews believe him? And that's a good question for us. Will we believe him? When he makes these claims about who he says he is, will we believe him? Not just in theory, not just kind of in, in uh, intellectual assent, but actually will, will, will we believe him with our entire lives? Did these Jews believe him? Well, at the point of verse 30, I think the answer is kind of likely not at this stage. To them, he was just another guy. He's making these claims, but he's just another guy to them, and so that makes what he's saying blasphemy. And so what Jesus needs to do now, he needs to back up these claims. He can't just say, I'm God, and then that's it. He actually needs to provide evidence for this, and he knows this. And, from ver- and so he says from verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He's saying, if you guys won't believe me, if you just have, if all I'm saying is this about myself. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, if you wanted to raise a crime, if you wanted to bring evidence against someone, if you wanted to convict a person of criminal offense, it needed to be on the basis of two, of, of the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is what Jesus does in our passage today. He brings to these Jews three witnesses. Three witnesses that will testify this is exactly who Jesus is. Here's the thing about Jesus. He's not throwing this argument at these guys in a, in a kind of way that he doesn't really care whether they believe it or not. This surprised me about this text, actually. I, I wasn't expecting this as I was preparing for this this week. He doesn't just throw these arguments out there thinking, I don't care if you guys believe it or not, this is what's true. Because he says, in verse 34, I say these things so that you may be saved. See, Jesus isn't just trying to win arguments here. He's trying to win people. And that's key for understanding everything he says here. He's saying, I'm saying these things to you. I'm telling you guys these things so that you will be saved. You may be saved. This is how we've got to understand this passage. It's not about sticking it to them and destroying them with his quick 
wept. No, he, he's hoping that the, the gospel will soften, their, their hearts will soften to the gospel. And this has got to stand out for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, you've got to know that we, it's not our role to go out and be all, and be all combative-like and try and destroy people and school people and, and, and win arguments for the sake of propping ourselves up. These people wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus wanted to save them. So Jesus brings his three witnesses to the stand. And all of these witnesses provide ample and increasing evidence that the claims that he's making about himself are actually true. The first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness is the works that Jesus was performing. And the third witness is the word of God that that speaks about Jesus, the Old Testament. And here's the thing about each one of these witnesses. Each one of them is backed by one major witness, one full-stop witness who is providing the witness through all of these other witnesses. Jesus says in verse 31, rather cryptically, there is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Who do we think he's talking about here? Some suggest that it's John the Baptist, and, and it might be, but I don't, I don't think it is. And I think the reason why is because the rest of the text doesn't really flow that way, and also because he says immediately, immediately after, I don't receive human testimony. Like he, He's not asking, he's not ex- expecting humans to stand up for him. John, John the Baptist is very much human. No, I, I think the other witness that Jesus is talking about here is God the Father. God the Father who will provide testimony to his people of his son's deity. God is going to provide the testimony through John the Baptist, through Jesus' works, through his own word. God the Father is testifying to the authority of God the Son. Like when our kids say, Dad said, Jesus is bringing out the same trump card. God is saying, yes, I am speaking through my son here. So let's look at each of these witnesses in turn. I'm going to call the first witness to the stand. It's John the Baptist. The question we're asking is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the son of man? Is he equal with God? Is he the giver of eternal life? Is he the judge of all mankind? That's the question we've got to ask right now. John the Baptist was a major player, a major character in the opening pages of uh, the, the Gospel of John. But you might have noticed in the last few pages and the last few weeks, things have gone a bit, a bit quiet about John the Baptist. We haven't heard much from him. And I think John would have it no other way. He came to, to share witness, to bear witness about Jesus and to get out of the way. John the Baptist was the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. And if you remember the words of John chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, it says that he came, this is John the Gospel writer, a different John, saying this about John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. 
John the Baptist's role was to be a witness to Jesus, to testify about Jesus. His whole shtick was to point people to, uh, away from himself and towards Jesus. And so Jesus brings John the Baptist up to the stand. Theoretically, like kind of, you know, metaphorically, he brings him to the stand. And then in verse 33, he brings up John the Baptist and he reminds them of what we read about in John chapter 1. So verse 33 he says, you sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. Now, if you were here with us in, I think it might have been week two or three, where it says in John chapter one that a group of Jews sent a bunch of messengers out to the wilderness, out to John the Baptist, to find out exactly who he was. These are the Jews that Jesus is talking to now. The same group of Jews who sent the messengers out to talk to John the Baptist. What was John's testimony? What do they go back and report? Let's go back to John chapter 1, verses 23. These witnesses, they came to, Jesus. They came to John the Baptist. These are messengers. And they wanted to know who he was. I'm not the Messiah, he said. Okay, are you Elijah then? No, I'm not Elijah. Okay, so are you the prophet? And he said again, no, I'm not the prophet either. And so they said, who are you? And he says this in verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am the one, said John, who he, came, he comes just before the Messiah, who comes to make the way straight before the Lord. He comes to prepare the hearts of people for the Lord to come. Jesus is saying, you sent messengers to find out about John the Baptist. They came back and they testified about this, that he pointed towards me. You've already heard John's testimony. This is my first witness. You've already heard what John said. John the Baptist is my first witness. He testified about me. He talked about me. And they didn't really have the option of ignoring John's testimony because they liked John. Well, they liked the crowds and the crowds liked John. Jesus says this in verse 35. John was a burning lamp. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You like John. You, you are willing to rejoice in his light. Are, are you willing to, to listen to actually what he says when he speaks about me, is what Jesus is saying. Are you willing to trust his word when he testifies about me? But as we said earlier, there's another who is testifying through John. It was God the Father. And this is the really interesting play on words that we see here in this passage. See, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 8, there's this interesting line where John says, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And then here in 5.35, Jesus said, John was a burning and shining lamp. So which is it? Is John a light or not? Well, the interesting thing about a lamp is that a lamp needs fuel from some source outside of itself to be able to burn. It's not like the sun which burns and shines perpetually. It needs to be fueled. John could not shine without something providing him fuel. And I think this is the point. Back to verse 32 again. There is another who testifies about me. Jesus is saying, God the Father is the one who is testifying about me. And he was doing, the one, doing that through John the Baptist. He's saying, I'm not just relying on John the Baptist's word and his platform and his fame in that moment. That was God speaking through John the Baptist. They couldn't ignore him. 
He was a prophet sent by God. They had to heed his words. It wasn't just a guy with an opinion. He was God's mouthpiece. You see, if you go back and you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, you see that these prophets, they had this really unique role to play in in the life of God's people, in the kings of Israel and Judah. They could bypass custom. They could, they could speak down to kings. I'm, I'm reading through um, Second Kings at the moment and just watching Elijah and Elisha, just like tear shreds of Ahab, tear shreds of Ahaziah, just, just talk down to them. Not like they come to the door, like, I'm not even going to come to the door to, to talk to you. They, they, they just speak down to them. They have this other authority. Why? Because they're representing God. They are the mouthpiece of God in that moment. Jesus is saying, you you can't ignore my first witness. He is a prophet sent by God. He was God's mouthpiece. John the Baptist, who testified him as Jesus the Messiah. That's the first witness. to, To testify that he has been sent by the Father, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. But Jesus is not done there yet. He calls to the stand the second witness the works that Jesus did. And again, the question that we are asking, is Jesus the man who, says he, man who he says he is? Is he the son of man, equal with God, the giver of life and the judge of all mankind? The second witness to this, second witness is Jesus' works. Jesus calls his works, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, and he calls them a greater witness. He's saying, yes, John, that my first witness was, was compelling, but uh, there's something even more convincing. These works that he was referring to are the, are the miracles and the great acts of power that Jesus performed. Namely, in this instance, the healing of this paralytic. We don't know this for sure, we're only speculating, but it's quite likely, entirely possible, that this man who had been healed, who couldn't walk for 38 years, and that day now he can was still in the vicinity of this conversation. At the very least, he was fresh in their memories. But it's not just him. It was the wedding in Cana. It was the healing of the royal official's son. Jesus performing these works and doing these works. And what have we been saying all throughout uh, this series as the reason why John wrote this gospel? He says this to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many things Jesus did, but these things have been written. Why? So that you will believe. See, the works that Jesus performed and that John recorded here for us is so that we would believe that Jesus is is who he says he is. Each of these miracles, the the turning of water into the wine, the the healing of the royal official's son, the healing of this man, uh, and then we get to chapter 6, and, and, and on, and we see all the other miracles and the things that Jesus performs and the things that Jesus does. They're, they're all to say one thing. They're to tell us something unique about Jesus that will cause us to believe in him. He says about these works in verse 36, These very works are, I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. This is the point of them. They were a sign. They were a testimony. They said something. 
the works weren't just for themselves. Jesus was, some people think that Jesus was this guy who had this incredible power and he's walked around kind of like shooting from the hip, just healing people left, right and center. Yeah, here we go. You want something? I can got some power. Bam, bam, bam. Kind of willy-nilly. No, he, he's actually, uh, he's got a purpose and a, and a plan with these works. These things are a sign. They, they're meant to say something. What do they say? Jesus has been sent from God. The great God of the universe, the, the infinite God of the universe, the one who created everything that we know and can see and can touch and can, and can smell and can hear and can taste. He created it all. He is the great, eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of the universe. Jesus saying, these works that I'm doing testify that I've been sent from him. He was a man. He was a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. He, he, his mat carried him for 38 years. And now on that day, he was walking carrying his mat. Jesus points to him. You can't ignore something like that. You can't stick your head in the sand about something like that. Look at this man. He's walking. He wasn't walking. Now he is walking. Can you ignore that? Can you put your hand, head in the sand about that? The scary reality is that, yes, some people actually can ignore that. They can stick their head in the sand about it. Some people have hardened their hearts to the Lord, refuse to believe. They are so bent on staying on the throne of their own lives that they will, re- they will resist the reality of God in their lives time and time again even in the face of something as blatant as a paralytic walking. This seems to be, have been the case for the Jews that Jesus is talking to. And, and if Jesus was not a merciful God, he wouldn't have said anything. But in his mercy, he brings this up. He brings this up. He gives them the opportunity. Hey, consider the fact that this, I, I made this man walk. What does that say about me? What does that tell you about me? Often in the Old Testament, you see these prophets, you see these men who have been sent by God, and they use these, they, they perform these signs and wonders in order to, to give credit, in order to, um, uh, kind of like their resume. This is who I have been sent from God. The, the example that stands out for me is Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was this great prophet who performed these incredible miracles and then he handed over the role of being prophet to his protege, his apprentice, Elisha. And when Elijah is taken up into heaven, uh, this, it says this, in Second Kings, it says the sons of the prophets were looking at Elisha, his protege, very carefully, trying to see what would happen. Elijah had passed his mantle onto Elisha, like a cloak of some, some sort, and Elisha goes back the path that they came he takes the mantle and he strikes the river Jordan and the river Jordan stands and parts left to the right and Elisha walks across and the sons of the prophets this group of men see that and they go he's the prophet he's the man sent from God it's, that's his resume that's his authority to speak on behalf of God sent by God to replace Elijah this is why Jesus points to his works that he was doing as a testimony that he had been sent by God the Father. He was showing them by his divine power, I am exactly who I say I am. I am one with God the Father. I am the judge. I am the one who gives life. 
So we've had, we've had the first two witnesses, John the Baptist and then Jesus' works. Now we call to the stand, witness number three, the word of God. Once again, the question we are asking is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the son of man? Is he the giver of life? Is he the judge of all mankind? Jesus' explicit claim in this next bit is that the Holy Scriptures are and always have been about him. What, what, they would have, uh, what we refer to now as the Old Testament, that's what he was referring to as the word of God. They are God's way of telling the world about his plan to save the world from their sin. And it all centers on Jesus. This is the claim that Jesus is making. All of the Old Testament is about him. Let me just read to you all of what he says in verses 37 and 40. Verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. In other words, I didn't need John the Baptist. I didn't need these works. The Father already has testified about me. He says, You have not heard his voice at any moment, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. He's saying, The Father has testified, but you don't see him. He's spoken, but you don't hear his voice. His word is not in you, and the reason why is because you don't believe the one that he has sent. He says in verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. These guys were experts in God's word. No doubt they knew the Old Testament better than anybody in this room. They spent their lives studying it. They were in God's word. They knew God's word inside and out. They were the experts. They were the ones. If you had a question about these scriptures, you went to one of these guys. But there was something crucially important missing from their understanding of God's word. They missed the main point. The whole story of the Bible is about God rescuing humanity from the entrapment of sin and restoring mankind to himself to worship and to glorify him as their king and as their savior. God was doing this through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, creating a people for himself to worship and glorify him and to show the rest of the world exactly who this God is. And at the absolute apex of that story is that God was sending his son to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice to end sin forever. If you go through the Old Testament with, with the lens on looking for uh, prophecies and, and hints and, and shadings of the Messiah, you see it all the way through, time and time again. Time and time again we see these little echoes, these little hints, these little things all the way through that God was sending a Messiah. These Jews knew it. They were waiting for that Messiah. They knew someone was coming. And yet, in the most unfortunate and sad way, they were, these guys were blind to the centerpiece of what they studied most devoutly. What, their studies became more important than the one they were studying. They believed the Bible. They believed that eternal life was at stake. And so they went to the Scriptures believing that as long as they got their ideological I's dotted and their theological T's crossed, that they would have eternal life. And yet, what they missed was what God's word testified about Jesus. 
and they were utterly unwilling to come to God himself to have life. And from verse 41, Jesus reveals more about the sad situation of their hearts. He says, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? If we think back to verse 34 for a quick moment, Jesus said there that he doesn't need human testimony. He doesn't need humans to testify about him. He already has God's testimony about him through John the Baptist, through his works, through his word. And here he adds, I don't need glory from you either. I've already got that from God the Father. He doesn't accept their praise. He's received glory from his Father. It's by his name that he comes. And in contrast, these guys, they don't seek the glory that comes from, only, from the only God. They're not seeking to please God. They're only interested in pleasing themselves and receiving glory from others. These guys loved their own glory. They loved the attention. They loved the applause that they got. They loved uh, receiving the, the special place of honor at festivals and feasts. They loved the attention they got from others because of their own theological prowess. They talk themselves up and they willingly accept glory from one another, but they don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. For them, glory was found in being the more theologically accurate than the next guy. If someone comes in his own name, they accept him. Because like him, they also come in their own name. They come for their own glory, their own brand, their own acceleration up the ladder of public opinion. Jesus could have stooped to their level. Jesus could have been like their favorite guy ever. He could have played their game. He could have done exactly what they wanted the Messiah to do. He could have come in and destroyed all their enemies' theological arguments. He, he could have come, they would have pat him on the back and gone, man, this guy is the best. But that's not the Messiah. That's not the Savior that he came to be. That's why he doesn't accept their glory, because it was worthless to him. In short, these guys were using God's word to exalt themselves. They were using God's word to get glory for themselves. There is a very real danger for us that we can go to God's word and we can think that we're the point. And the danger, oh sorry, and, and, and the, Bible for, the Bible there is there for us to exalt ourselves above others. We get the right doctrine, we get the right orthodoxy, and we basically, basically get all of our theological ducks in a row. And yet, if, if it centers on us and not Him, we'll miss the point of the Bible entirely, and we won't receive eternal life. Jesus makes this clearer than ever from verse 45. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. That's a terrifying sentence. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? 
In other words, you've put your hope and your trust for eternal life in your own ability to decipher the law. And he's referring there to the Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Old Testament which Moses wrote. He's saying you've put your hope in Moses' writings, but if you were really as good at interpreting them as you tell people that you are, you would know that Moses' words actually accuse you. Because Moses' words point to the one who's talking to you right now. Moses wrote about me. It was all about me, Jesus is saying. God's word crescendos finds its apex, its summit is in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' indictment on these guys is not that that theology is bad. It's that they haven't gone far enough. They haven't believed it enough. They were experts in God's word, but he says, you're yet to believe it. They couldn't, because they couldn't tell that it all crescendos with Jesus. Many people fall into this trap where they believe that their doctrine about Jesus, not Jesus himself, is the source of eternal life. They believe that because of their expertise with God's word, because of the position that they've taken, because of their deep understanding of the scriptures, God will reward their diligence and God will give them eternal life. They cease coming to the scriptures willing to be shaped and molded by God's word and instead open their Bibles thinking about how they can preach this to someone else. They no longer approach other believers with humility thinking, how can I be taught by this person? How can I love this person? How can I serve them? Instead they come with pride looking for opportunities to play show and tell with their theological prowess. They no longer come to God as they once did with the empty hands of faith. Now they come to God with their hands full of of their own accomplishments and ideas. To such people, Jesus says, you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he has sent. They were in God's word, but God's word was not in them. Now don't get me wrong. Good doctrine is essential. It's absolutely essential. If you're hearing me say that you know, doctrine is unimportant, that all that deep theology stuff, that's unimportant, just love God, love others, and do whatever you want, that's not what I'm saying at all. We believe doctrine is important. We're serious about it here at LCC. We, we don't want to water down God's word. We want to understand it for exactly what it says. We don't bend the doctrine to suit our appetites. We want to submit ourselves to God's word. But good doctrine must always lead us to personally surrendering ourselves at the feet of Jesus, our God and our King and our brother and our dearly beloved friend. Doctrine that does not draw us closer to Jesus in such a way that by our proximity to him we becoming more and more like him seriously misses the point. Doctrine that doesn't, that, that doesn't orthodoxy that doesn't lead us to worship is not orthodoxy at all. When we open God's word, when we study the scriptures, it should not be, oh, look at something new that I've learned and this is going to help me in my argument against that person. It should be, oh, this brings me closer to Jesus and makes me want to worship him. That's the point of the scriptures. Do you come to God knowing that you're a sinner and need to be saved? Or do you come to him looking for awards for your own goodness? Can you say that you know God or do you just know a few things about him? Jesus' simple words are a terrifying warning that there are many, many ways that you can look like a Christian on the outside but never actually know Jesus. 
So how can we tell? How can we think through that? How can we understand it? How can we work that out? Well, there is one simple question that will get us on the right track, but there's no such thing as a formula or some kind of like a test that you can take. There's no like, you know, Myers-Briggs test. Am I really actually truly a Christian? But there is a good, some good ways we can think about it. And so a good question we can ask ourselves is, do I know Jesus in such a way that I'm becoming more and more like him? Do I know Jesus in such a way that I'm becoming more and more like him? And I've chosen those words really carefully. Because you can claim to know Jesus but never actually become like him. And in the same way, you can also not know Jesus but form your life to look like his in the hope that he will get to know you. And both of that is wrong. Both of those positions are wrong. Some people will claim to know Jesus, but their life looks nothing like his. Their, their lives don't resemble his life. They, they don't resemble the kindness and the generosity or his love for others. There's no interest in ever becoming like Jesus. It's just like, I like the fact that he gets me off the hook for my sin, and that's about it. See, the problem with that position is that you haven't gone far enough with grace. You don't realize how fallen you are, that you are in desperate need of grace. You think that you don't need grace. Others know very well how far they have fallen. They are experts in how far, how, how bad of a sinner they are. And so they work hard to make their lives look like Jesus, hoping that they'll convince Jesus to save them. And they don't realize how much grace there is in Jesus. Both of those people are in the same boat and both of them need more grace. If you're, if you're sitting here thinking, I'm actually not that bad. Like, I know some sinners who are real bad. I know that Jesus came to die for sinners, but let's be honest, I was a pretty easy save. You need more grace. Or, if you're thinking to yourself, there's no way God could ever save me. I'm so far gone. You need more grace. Both of you are wrong. You need more grace. You need to understand the grace and mercy of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. This is why we're hearing God's word this morning. So that we may be saved. This is his mercy to us. This is his grace to us. Some people don't think they need to be saved. Others don't think they can be saved. Both are wrong. What we need to do is we need to look at our sin and we need to know that there is a judge who will judge all of mankind like we looked at last week and he will, he will judge according to the works. He will look at our lives and he will judge. There is a judge. But we also must look at that judge and know that that judge is also the redeemer. He is the just and the justifier. He is the one who judges all of mankind and he is the one who receives the judgment on behalf of mankind, on behalf of those who would put their faith in him. This is why, and I know it's a bit awkward and a bit weird, and I like the fact that we're getting used to it as a church, but this is why we have confession and assurance. We don't just have confession where we go, Lord, I'm a sinner, and how terrible am I? And then we just kind of get on with worship. We have confession because we must look at our sin. We must look at the fact that we are sinners and left to our own devices, we would do nothing but rail against the God of the universe. We would not do nothing but rebel against him and we are eternally lost because of those sins. We have that. We must look at our sin. And then we always have assurance. 
We open God's word and we point to some passage in the Bible that says, when you confess your sins to God, He forgives you of your sins. And we need to have both, we need to have our eyes on both of those things. If you lose sight on one of those things, you'll fall away from Jesus. We need the grace of the Lord to bring us to the reality of both of those things. We are sinners, and yes, we are sinners, we are fallen short of the glory of God, and yet by God's great, beautiful, wonderful, eternal, never-stopping, bulletproof love for us, He has saved us from our sins and made us clean again. See, this is the reality for you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, your sins don't count against you anymore. There, there, there is a long record of your debt, huge record of your debt. You never get to the end of it. And if you put your faith in Jesus to take care of your sins, He takes care of those sins. I was saying this to someone this week, that there's a cup of judgment on the table in front of you. And the person who puts their faith in Jesus says, Jesus, would you drink this for me? And he drinks that cup of judgment dry. And no matter how many times we go to pick up that cup, it is bone dry. And we look across at Jesus and he's doing some of these ones, licking, licking his lips. He drinks our judgment dry. He takes it all. There is no condemnation left. Praise God. Some of us want to pay for our sins ourselves because we think that we'll know then that they're actually finally paid for. No, look at Jesus. He is the testimony. He is the witness of the fact that they have been paid for. So live in light of that. Enjoy being free of your sins. Enjoy the freedom. You don't have any reason to feel guilty before God anymore. You don't have any reason to feel naked and ashamed in front of God anymore. When you feel condemned about your sin, you can run to God and not away from Him because He receives you with, open with the open arms of grace and love and kindness. Jesus says these things to us so that by hearing them we may be saved. By hearing that He is the God who judges those who reject Him and gives life to those who receive Him. The invitation today is once again to receive Him to know Him, to put your faith in Him and your trust in Him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 